Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, brother, this is going to be week number two as we are looking at this book. We're asking big questions. Here's why we're going to ask big questions. One, if you are spiritually unresolved, eventually you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with this book, okay? Because this book is what the teachings of Jesus have been recorded in, what values, um, what life really means, the whole narrative for life. It's all found here. And so this is a very legitimate question. If you got asked questions about this book regarding its authenticity, its trustworthiness, all that. If you're a veteran, you still want to ask questions about this book, right? Because this book has changed my life. This book has been the pursuit of my academic life, of my vocational life. It's how I shape my view of the world. It's the narrative by which I understand everything. So I want to make sure that this book is genuine authentic, right? Why, why would you, because if you're going to shape your life on it, you want to be fairly certain about it, okay? So there are a lot of questions that come up when it comes to the Bible. There is no way that in a half hour I can address all of those, but I would like us to look at a definition of the Bible, and then I want us to look at eventually a passage from the book of Second Peter that has helped me so much in understanding how the Bible came about. So we're not going to look at the technical aspects. It's kind of beyond the scope of the study of text and um, uh, the bringing together of the original canon of Scripture. But we will look at what Peter tells his people. This, this is how the Bible came about, and this is why you can trust it. Okay? So let's start with a definition of the Bible. Here's one of our problems. We use the word Bible. Bible. Latin. Biblia. It was a way that when Gutenberg and others were trying to put together the book and they were trying to give it a title, they just took the title, the word Latin Bible, and they said, we're going to call this the Bible. Let's do a capital T and a capital B, that it's not just a book, it is the book. Okay, so that's what that literally means. One of the challenges, though, is that this book never calls itself the Bible. It's a word that we gave it. This book calls itself the text or the scriptures for the most part. So here's our working definition of the Bible. The Bible is a library. We're gonna explore this word. A library of writings written by men. And if it just ended right there, what we're going to be doing throughout the future in this church would be pointless. If this was just a book written by men, game's over. I'm not interested. And inspired, inspired, this Greek word theopneustos, which actually means breathed, okay? So it is breathed out by God that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. So last week we looked at Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus gives us his perspective. He has such a high view of the Bible. He quotes it, he teaches it, and he says this, Everything that was written prior to Jesus, he says, it's all about me. This is a unified story that is pointing towards what God is doing on planet Earth right now. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this idea of a library of writings. So 
scriptures written over a period of 1,500 years. It's a long time, isn't it? Uh, our nation, what, we're not even 300 years old. When you think of the founding of our nation, it seems like a long time ago. Culture was different, language was different, values were different, uh, cultural dynamics were very different. Imagine a 1,500-year period, countless cultures involved, 66 separate books. That's why we're going to call it a library. It's 66 separate books, 40 authors, a minimum of 40 different authors. Again, this is the most published, most purchased book of all time. By far, nothing is even close. 20 million copies are published a year. It goes on and on, but it's this interesting library. So here's point number one. Okay, this is a little bit stretching, but hear me out on this. Think of the Bible as a library. Okay, as a library. When you go to a library, and I know not a lot of us go to a library as often as we used to, but when you go to a library, you walk in, or you could even think of a bookstore if that's more helpful. In a library, books are organized according to, here's our word, genre. Genre, okay? So if you came into the library and your main intent was this, I want to be entertained. I want to be entertained. Where are you going to head? Are you going to head to the how-to section or the documents section? No, you're going to head towards the fiction section, okay? If you came into the library and you said, I need to learn one unique skill, you're going to look towards a certain genre. If you came into the library and you said, I want to learn more about a period in history, what would you do? You'd go to a historical nonfiction section. So today we have these different genres of literature. And one thing that can be very confusing, and I would say this, I think most of our biggest questions where we're really confused by the Bible is because we don't understand that the Bible was written in different genres. Okay, remember, it's a library of books. So when you come to the Bible, it's not that there are certain things that are less true. It's there's different forms or formats of writing. Okay, let's take a minute. I'd love to expose you to the different genres of writing that you find within the library of Scripture. Okay, ready? Here we go. Number one, the first genre would be narrative. Narrative. It tells a story of what happened. Exodus and Ruth would be examples. So it literally just lays out, this is what happened and this person married this person, they had this child and they moved here and they did these things. So there's a big portion of the Bible which is purely narrative. It just tells you the story. Here's another genre of scripture, poetry. Okay, poetry. Vivid imagery that often involves an emotional response Here's what you got to know. Hebrew poetry is very different than English poetry. So in English poetry, we kind of have two forms. One is written according to cadence, right, or rhythm. And the other is written according to rhyme. <coughs> Excuse me. So this was that poem that you wrote in fifth grade when you thought you were in love for the first time. What is a word that rhymes with true? Blue, right? And that's kind of how we write our poetry or their sonnets, which are more rhythmic, things like that. Hebrew poetry has nothing to do with either one of those things. Hebrew poetry has to do with parallelism and emphasis and expansion of thought. It begins small and then progresses out. And this is what is hard for us to grasp 
Because we don't even know we're reading poetry when we're reading in the Bible. One third of the Bible is written in the poetic genre. One third of the Bible is written in a form of poetry, but it's very different poetry than what we understand. Okay, here's our next biblical genre, wisdom. Call this wisdom literature. Wise sayings meant to communicate truths. So Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, there's about 31 Proverbs. A lot of people I know, I love this practice. You read a proverb a day and apply it to your life. So a proverb is, we would call it in the English language, modern, we call it like an axiom. So it's this well-defined, well-tested truth. I'll give you an example. Proverbs says this, raise up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. So what does that tell you? It's brilliant wisdom. It says, if you're a parent, you have, you have a path to show your child. It's not about passivity. It's not even about mainly protection. Your job as a parent is to help a child see a path. And then here's the result of that. When they are old, they won't depart from it. I wish, I wish, I wish it said, and when they're 20, they will not depart from it. But it says, when they're old, that if you can establish the right path for a child, being proactive as a parent, eventually when they've matured, when they've grown up, when they're old, they will remember that path and they will re-engage with that path, okay? So that's not necessarily a promise, right? It's different than if Jesus said, I will never leave you and forsake you. It's an axiom of wisdom that we can integrate into our lives. Another genre. Here's our next genre would be prophecy, prophecy. Two forms of this, okay? Number one would be forth telling, F-O-R-T-H, meaning a prophet is speaking forth a current message to the people. That's about 80% of the prophecy in scripture. There's a second type of prophecy is foretelling. Foretelling, meaning predicting what will happen, a warning about something that is to come. So the prophecy genre, four major prophets in the Old Testament. There's then 12 minor prophets. It's not like major and minor leagues. It's just the minor prophets are short and the major prophets are very long. They're collections of God's communications of love, instruction, and warnings to specific people at specific times. All right, so these prophets, you can read the book of Isaiah. And they usually have a pattern. It's like, hey, people, you're, you're wandering. Come back to me. The prophet would speak that out loud. They don't listen. Okay, people, there's, if you don't do something, something's going to happen. Please come back to me. This is what you're doing. This is what is offending me. You're, you're separating yourself from your creator. And then the foretelling would be, guess what? In just a couple of years, an enemy's going to come in and invade you. I've been warning you, warning you, warning you. Prophetic literature. Our next genre would be the Gospels. This is probably um, the easiest just to grasp. There are four biographies about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? And they're written in a very specific genre. They're narrative, right, because they follow Jesus, but they don't follow his whole life. Luke gives us a couple glimpses into Jesus' childhood, but the rest of them, they are three years of Jesus' existence recorded very, very specifically, and th- this is the gospel. But within the gospel, there would be different genres. Jesus will speak in parables, right, which is a form of poetry, or Jesus will speak prophetically, 
Okay, our next genre of the Bible in the library of scripture is epistles. The word literally means letters. They're letters written to communities of disciples of Jesus found throughout the Roman Empire. So these letters can be written to individuals like the book of 1 Timothy and the book of 2 Timothy. Paul writes a letter to Timothy and says, hey, here's what you need to know. Here's how you're going to work through that challenging situation. Here's what Jesus would say to you. Or an epistle can be written to a community. Book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. They're letters written to an entire church of people addressing some very specific things that are happening in their culture during that time. And then our next would be apocalyptic. And this, my humble opinion, is the most misunderstood form of biblical literature. We really just have one whole book that's written that way and then a part of another book. Apocalyptic literature, we have nothing that parallels it in our world. You could say like fantasy literature was like that, but apocalyptic literature wasn't meant to be entertaining. It was meant to communicate a very profound truth. It's a unique style that involves metaphors, imagery, and symbolism meant to communicate an urgent message. The book of Revelation, although not the whole thing, the first three chapters are epistles written to three existing churches. And then after that, you have dragons and you have grasshoppers that are, you know, bigger than the house. And you've got, like, people read the book of Revelation, they're like, whoa, I recently read a study The author read the book of Revelation and he made this compelling account that obviously when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was taking hallucinogenic drugs. Okay, why did he come to that conclusion? Because he doesn't understand that there is a form of literature called apocalyptic literature where you make, you know, dragons and all this and it's meant to communicate a very specific message. You'll find some apocalyptic literature in Daniel as well. Okay, so there's our forms of biblical literature. Why does it matter? Here's a few reasons why genre really matters. Tax season's coming up. If you were working on your taxes and you needed to read an IRS document, how do you read that document? What if I said, I'm gonna read this IRS production as if it were a form of poetry? where there's imagery and symbolism, and I'm not supposed to take it literally. So at the end, where it says I owe them $7,900, I am just reading this in a different genre lens, and that's not really $7,900. That's up to me. I can interpret it to be whatever I want it to be. I think it's $79. I am very, very convinced of this. When you read an IRS document, You do not do it to have fun. It's not fiction, right? If you're gonna read a biography, you said, I really wanna learn more about, let's say Abraham Lincoln, okay? I wanna learn about his leadership, what happened in his life, what made him tick. And you were reading this thick, heavy biography and you were learning all these things that you had never learned about Abraham Lincoln. And you're like, you're telling your friends, like, you've got to read this book. This book is amazing. Like what made Abraham Lincoln tick? And you get to the last page and here's the last sentence. Just kidding, this was a work of fiction. You'd be like, you can't do that. 
This is a biography. And when I read a biography, I have an expectation that is well-researched, that is authentic. If you want to write a fictional book about Abraham Lincoln, that's fine. But just tell me beforehand that it's fictional. Doesn't mean it can't be a great book. But you've got to tell me what I'm reading. Um, When Isaiah says this, that one day the trees of the field will clap their hands. Is anybody checking their trees? See like, oh my, no, trees aren't clapping today. Maybe tomorrow. No, 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 we understand that this is poetry. We understand what Isaiah is saying, if you read that in context, is that even creation is one day going to embrace God in its worship. Creation longs for its creator. Let's take the book of Genesis, for example. So here's where genre is super important. It's the first book in the Bible. From chapter 12 to the end, the 50s, it's biographical or narrative. It starts with a man named Abram. His name's changed to Abraham. And then it's about his descendants, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The last part of the book is about a man named Joseph. And it's very, very factual. It lays out the timeline for their lives, their experiences with God. And so you read that and you don't have to like wonder like, what does Joseph really represent? He's a real man, really worked in Egypt. However, Genesis 1 through 11 is a completely different type of biblical literature. It, it, it is representative. It does not mean in the least bit that it's untrue, but it's, it's filled with all these poems, all these thoughts that help us to understand who we are, who God is, what he came to earth to do, what happened, why is the catastrophe that we're currently experiencing, why did it come about? I bet, I bet that a majority of my understanding of the world is shaped from Genesis 1 to 11, but we have to understand that is a unique form of genre, packed with truth. So, so here's the challenge. Sometimes we say, well, if, if there's a different genre, can all genres represent truth? Let, let me give you an example. Um, C.S. Lewis. How many people have read Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, quite a few of you if you're online. Uh, or like he has a whole space trilogy. Now, C.S. Lewis has written a lot of different books. Some of them are what we call fantasy, okay? Others, if you read like The Abolition of Man, these like profound theological books, but right after that, you could read The Screwtape Letters, which is a book all about spiritual warfare and spiritual dynamics that happen, but it's, 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 he uses this fantasy model where you have like one demon who's new to the job and one veteran demon trying to train the junior demon and you read it and it's very, very entertaining. Does it mean it's not true? Oh, he's got these profound truths. I remember one of the first times that I really began to understand the good news, the gospel, was reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Now it's fanciful. You've got like centaurs and you've got half goat, half man people and talking animals and Aslan, who's obviously Jesus, and you got white witches, but he lays out the entire message of the New Testament 
in a fantasy format, and it's packed with truth. But the genre, he's trying to help kids, young people, people who have no spiritual background or biblical background to understand what God is doing here on planet Earth. And he uses a genre. So when we read the Bible, it's so important to understand the genre. Understand that this, this is a library of books. It's a library written by 40 different authors, 66 books, over 1,500 years, packed with truth, but also using literary craft, using literary style for each of its original readers, right? So this is a library. Come to the Bible thinking of it as a library. Point number two, how did the Bible come to be? Right? How, how did the Bible come to be? Now, there are multiple sacred texts in the world. Every world religion has a sacred text. And the Bible is very, very unique in how it says this book, this sacred text came to being. Uh, most of the time, most world religions, it's, I don't mean to be derogatory here, but it is an actual uh, uh, phrase. They call it the golden plate theory. Okay, the golden plate theory, where if you look at other sacred texts, it's this idea that God somehow dropped a, a series of golden plates, a sacred book. He had written it in its entirety. Somebody finds it in a cave. Somebody finds it under a rock. And then a human being reads it or has a mystical capacity to be able to read it and then writes it down for everybody else. The, every other sacred text is God, a form of solidarity, only he wrote it transmitted it directly to a prophet, to the original founding member of the religion, and then it's passed on to us. Christianity says something really different, really different, mind-bendingly different. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at the book of 2 Peter, which is an epistle, okay, written to a group of people, and they are asking questions about the scriptures. Can I trust this? Is it reliable? Where did it come from? And here's what we won't do. There's big I words that have to do with the Bible. Inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration. It's kind of out of the scope of our time together. I think it'd be brilliant to tackle those on your own. But what Peter is going to do is he's going to say, I want you to understand the dynamic and the partnership between human beings and God that led to the scriptures. Okay, let's read it together. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we, referring to himself, did not follow cleverly devised stories. First thing he's saying is, hey, we didn't make this up. Okay? This wasn't like a group of people got together and go, hey, let's see if we can deceive people for the next 2,000 years. Let's see, let's see if we can just like totally mix them up. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses. This was an experience that we had of his majesty, of this idea that divine came to earth in the person of Jesus. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from, to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. What is Peter referring to? Peter is referring to this experience that he had on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus had 12 disciples. He only took three of them, climbed a mountain. And when he gets to the top of the mountain, like if you were a young Jewish man, this is beyond 
Like you'd never expect this. Elijah, who's kind of the foremost prophet, and Moses show up. And they're having a dialogue with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John are like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. There's the originator of the scriptures in Moses. There's Elijah who represents this incredible period of time where God's speaking through the prophets and they're conversing with our rabbi, Jesus. And it's all about this fulfillment. It's all leading up to the person of Jesus. And Peter gets so excited, like he always does. If you're enthusiastic and say dumb stuff, you're in good company. This is what Peter does all the time. And Peter goes, hey, hey, I know what we should do. Let's build like a little temple, a little shrine here. And Jesus goes, nah, that's stupid. Let's not, we're not gonna do that. And while, while Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses, a voice from heaven that Peter hears, it's physical, it's audible, it says, this is my beloved son standing with Moses, standing with Elijah. God says, this is the fulfillment of, him all, of it all. In him, I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something, he says, completely reliable. Completely is big, right? What if it said mostly reliable, <laughs> significantly reliable, 90% reliable? He says, it is completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, see, when he wants them to understand the scripture, he says, this is the, the most important thing for you to know. Un, you must understand that no prophecy, no foretelling of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So no prophet ever sat down and said, you know, I'm kind of bored today. Maybe I should write the Bible. Maybe I should record my interpretation of who God is and the events that have happened. This is what Peter says, that has never happened. A human being has never been the impetus or the catalyst for the scriptures. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. It, the Genesis was not a human being, but prophets, though human, okay? So they're prophets, but they're human. He understands they have different education levels. They have different experiences. They have different abilities in, in writing. Spoke from God as they were, and here, this, this helps me understand. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the same word you would use in the Greek language. If there were a ship, a sailing ship, and it has its mast up, it has its sails out, and without wind, it's just gonna sit there. All it's gonna do is drift. This is the word. The wind comes and carries along the ship. The ship has no power in and of itself. It has to be animated. It has to be breathed into by the wind in order for it to move forward. And this is what Peter's saying. When you think of the scriptures, I want you to think of this, that God did use human beings. He did. But human beings couldn't do this by themselves. The spirit of God breathed into them, 
carried them along, carried the narrative of 1,500 years, carried it, moved it forward, the mega story of what God is doing, leading us to this point right now. And so Peter says, when you look back and you have questions, know this, the spirit of God navigated, he breathed it, he came, he brought it to this exact point. How did the scriptures come about? Through a partnership. A partnership. This is what is unique about the teachings of the Bible. There's no golden plate theory. Peter says it right here. He says there were different authors, at least 40 of them. And what happened every time they didn't fall into a trance, they didn't wake up. You know the only thing that we know that God actually wrote? It's the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And then Moses threw them down and broke them. Moses, come on, man. Those are collectibles. <laughs> right? So, this, it, so really what Peter's talking about is what we call the, the doctrine or the theory of incarnation. Took the church four or 500 years of squabbling about this, but this idea. So was Jesus a man with a divine spark? Was Jesus only appeared to be a human being? And this is where we, like, nothing makes sense unless Jesus was all God and all man. Mary was literally his biological mother. God is his biological father. And so Jesus is all man, all God. And this is what Peter's saying about the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, understand there is a human being that God is using. They're not doing it by themselves, though. They're carried along by the Spirit. Let me give you an example of this. Um, go back 20 years. I'm, I'm in uh, graduate school, and I'm at the end of a couple of years of studying the Greek language. You know what the final is? You don't know what book of the New Testament, but you're going to show up, and you have four hours to translate the Greek, whatever section of Scripture they give you, from Greek into English. Now I'm terrified because I haven't done really, really well in Greek. All I know is this, is that if they give me Romans, I am in a world of trouble. Romans is written by somebody who had an unbelievable level of vocabulary and training and education. It is one of the highest forms of the Greek language that you can find anywhere in the ancient world. Okay, we don't, we're just reading the English translation, but you, when you read it in Greek, you're like, I don't even know what that word is. Here's what I'm hoping. They give me the gospel of 1 John, or the book of 1 John. Because the book of 1 John, I'm not kidding you, is written in about the equivalent of a third grader's Greek level. Third graders. Because like every eighth word is love. I love it, right? It's really like the Greek, the syntax, everything is really, really simple. So I come into class, and I'm given the book of 1 John in Greek, and I'm like, I got it. <laughs> I got it. Now, how can that be? How can Romans or even Hebrews, which is this lofty form of, of writing, highly educated, highly complicated, and then this simple book like the book of 1 John with very small, um, simple linguistic basis, how could both of them be the Bible? How could both of them have these really important messages? This is how, this is how. Because the Spirit of God carried along the writer of Romans. And the Spirit of God carried along the book of 1 John. And both of them are profoundly true and profoundly important. And both of them have the power to shape our lives. So this is what is radical 
You will not find this anywhere else about the teachings of the Bible. God says, I'll use people. People who maybe are, Lord, I don't know how to spell that word. Just write it down. We'll fix it later. But it's carried along, inspired, animated by God. That brings us to our final point, And this is by far the most important. If you heard nothing else, please, please listen to this. Here's what we got to know. Point number three. The spirit of God is involved in both the writing and the reading of scripture. Okay. It's great. If the spirit of God was involved in the whole formation of the ancient scriptures, that's beautiful. But I'm still stuck with a problem. If God did that, and then there's me, anybody feel like, hey, I suffer from this disease. It's called cerebral congestion. Um, I'm not that sharp. I can't figure things out. I'm easily confused. Here's the great news is when you read the text, you have to read it. Okay, here's this library of God. There's different genres. There's different cultures represented. But God was involved in the writing, and he's involved in the moment that you and I read the text. Let me read from the book of John, which is a gospel, okay? Chapter 14, where Jesus says this. He is talking about his future disciples. Jesus says, but the advocate, a legal term, counselor, um, tutor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will, what's the Holy Spirit gonna do? Teach you a few things. Just the things you need to know. Teach you a certain level, then he'll stop. He'll try teaching you, but you're not very sharp, so he'll give up. <laughs> he will teach you, pentata is what it is, all things. He's gonna just keep teaching and he's not gonna give up. And, and he will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is what Jesus says about the spirit. We talk a lot about the spirit. We emphasize different aspects of the spirit. This is what we should emphasize more. Jesus says this, here's how you're going to know the truth. Here's how you're going to one day, when this Bible comes together, be able to deal with it. Is, okay, this is, I, I love saying this to people when people tell me, like, I'm trying to read the Bible. I'm super confused. I don't get it. You never have to lead, read the Bible alone. You can read the Bible alone. You can read it and hope that your cognitive capacity is able to figure everything out. But Jesus said this, Jesus said, when I leave, I'm gonna send my spirit. And one of the primary things that my spirit will do is my spirit will be involved in the teaching and reminding of my disciples. That when they read the Bible, all they have to do is say, hey, I need a tutor. This is bigger than me. My mind is fallen. Um, I looked at a study one time and it said that only 20% of my brain works. The rest of it is just sitting there. Like, Come on, I want to use all, I know what's going to happen. Resurrection, one day I'm going to get up out of my grave and I'll be like, boom, it is on now. I get it, okay? But right now I've got this problem. And so I say, God, you're involved in the writing of the scripture. And would you be involved in the reading of the scripture in my car at the lunch break, uh, early in the morning, late at night, that I never read this book alone because I don't have the capacity or the ability. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you my spirit. And he's the teacher. He's the advocate. He's the counselor. He will teach you all things and he will remind you 
of everything that I have said to you. So if there is an encouragement I had when it comes to the Bible, it would be this. Don't read the Bible by yourself. You'll get confused. Read the Bible saying, I need the Spirit of God who wrote this to teach me, to remind me, to bring, we call this revelation. It means I couldn't figure this out myself. Revelation to my life and to my heart. So um, I'm a little bit hesitant to say this, but somebody asked me this week, they said, hey, would you give me a list of the commentaries that you use um, when you teach on the weekends? I, like, I didn't want to answer right away because here's, here's, here's the truth. Uh, I had developed a really unhealthy relationship with commentaries. And by the way, commentaries are scholars who write about the Bible to tell you what parts of the Bible mean. Okay? I, I learned how to do that years and years of just, well, what does the commentary say? So about 10 years ago, I quit looking at commentaries. Totally risky, Right? Because like, whoa. it was so easy though. This is what this passage means because so-and-so says it. So this is the dangerous world I live in. Now I have checks and balances. But I, I read this text. And like the weekend's coming. And God, here's the text. I need you to teach me. I need you to guide me. I need the spirit who is involved in the writing of the text to be involved in the reading of the text. I need that to happen. And it happens in my life. And here's the beauty. It happens in your life. If you need me to teach you the Bible, you're in trouble. Whose job is it to teach you the truth? Spirit of God. The spirit of God will teach you, will tutor you, will show you the truth. I want to just read a quote. I'm going to move backwards just, to, just for a little bit. This is from um, Tim Keller. And I, I love this because he, he grasps some of our issue with the Bible. The reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories. Okay, one book after another, this story about that story, each with a moral. So we read the Bible like what's the truth, what's the moral for the day for how we should live our lives. It is not. That is not what the Bible is. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into this present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will come to put things right. The Bible, a library of scripture inspired by the spirit of God, taught today by the same spirit of God. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.